Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, God's Rescue Plan. So let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, The Call. There are in the Bible a number of examples of God's call. God calls someone to play a significant role in his plan. Abraham, Genesis 12, 1, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. The call of Joshua in Joshua 1, 2, and 3, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised Moses. And then there's a call of Samuel, 1 Samuel 3, verse 11. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. <laughs> or consider the call of Jeremiah the prophet, Jeremiah 1, 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. I mean, each one of those calls is unique, and they're related to God's dealings at a very specific moment in history. And we're told about those callings so that we won't think that the work of God is the product of human ingenuity. God is always the first actor. He's the one who calls. The Bible story is not the story of religious thinkers who advanced religious thinking. It's the story of the actions of our great God who, when the time was exactly right, called forth his chosen instrument. I mean, after all, isn't that what we celebrate at Christmas? After centuries of promise, at just the right time, God sent his son into the world. Jesus was not a great religious thinker. He's the son of God sent into the world, God's call. Now, when God calls his man, everything changes. You know, we've been studying the book of Exodus, and we've been following both the history of Israel and the life of Moses. And through a series of events, Moses went from being a hunted, condemned infant to a prince in Egypt, to now finding a new home among the Midianites and being reduced to a shepherd. And here he would have stayed had it not been for the call of God. Indeed, there he did stay for 40 years until he reached the ripe age of 80. But as a dear friend reminded me just a few weeks ago, he said, God will not dismiss us to the life to come until he's completed his purpose in our lives. So let's begin with our text, Exodus 3, 1 to 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. You know, our text says that Moses came to the west side of the wilderness, and depending on whether you think Mount Sinai is in the traditional location, you know, in the Sinai Peninsula, or whether you think it's further to the east in Arabia, I mean, I leave that discussion for another time. But Moses had led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and every once in a while we hear commentators wondering what he was doing so far from home. But if you have ever been to, you know, desert locations in the Middle East and seen shepherds with their flocks, 
And if you're like me, you wonder why there's anything there for the, the sheep to eat at all. And yet sheeps and goats are remarkable in their ability to find small, seemingly impossible bits of vegetation on which to graze. But it does mean that a shepherd is going to have to travel a vast distance if he's going to shepherd his flock. So he comes now to Horeb, the mountain of God. You might wonder why it's called Horeb, because we know later, all the way in Exodus 16, it's going to be referred to as Sinai. But as we already saw, Reuel is also called Jethro. And we might remember that Jacob was later called Israel, although he's still referred to as Jacob. <laughs> I remember the first time I read, you know, a book by the Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky. And in short order, I lost track of who everyone was, and then I realized what was going on. There were multiple names for the same people. So I, I kept a separate list on a separate piece of paper of the characters and their different names. It's the only way I could keep track. And for those of us reading the Bible, we'll just have to get content with the idea that there's a similar phenomenon going on here. Well, at any rate, Moses up to this point in time has never seen a supernatural encounter, but he sees a burning bush now. And he's no doubt aware of God's providence. I mean, his mother would have told him how God rescued him from death at the hands of Pharaoh. And I don't doubt that Moses was aware that God is everywhere at work, everywhere present, but he's never encountered a miraculous sign. And here at first, he's merely curious. It's not how this bush is burning. I mean, it's hot and barren climate. It must have been fairly easy for things to catch fire. But here the matter is different. I mean, first of all, the bush isn't large. I mean, the Hebrew word translated as bush, you know, it means a relatively small thorny shrub. No doubt on cold desert nights, I mean, Moses must have lit some of those shrubs on fire himself just to keep warm. But as he knew, these shrubs would be dry and they'd burn up very quickly. But a lot of things don't make sense. So he goes to look. I mean, for one, only one shrub is burning. Nothing else is on fire. And second, instead of quickly burning up, it just keeps burning. It doesn't make sense. But there's something else here. Moses writes that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the bush. And I have to assume that as he goes to examine the strange phenomenon, he sees the angel of the Lord in the fire. And I stop here not to describe exactly what it is that Moses saw, but rather to ask who it is that Moses saw. Who is the angel of the Lord? And the phrase is used six times in the book of Genesis, but only in reference to two incidents. One is in reference to Hagar and her son Ishmael in the wilderness. And the second in reference to Abraham going out to be called to sacrifice his son Isaac. And this now is the only time we find that phrase in the book of Exodus. But in the Old Testament, some of the appearances of the angel of the Lord, well, they're quite striking. I mean, one example is in the book of Judges, chapter 13. Angel of the Lord appears to the parents of Samson. And after their encounter, Manoah, the man, says, we're going to die. We've seen the face of God. This has led to a great deal of discussion as to who the angel of the Lord is. I mean, we note, first of all, that the Hebrew word for angel can also be translated as messenger. So it is possible that it's not an angel at all, but a messenger of God. Indeed, in Genesis 16, after Hagar has seen the angel of the Lord, verse 16 says, So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are of God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. The God of seeing. You know, the Hebrew El Roy, proper name for God. And it's for that reason that many Bible teachers, well, including myself, you know, we believe that Hagar actually saw God himself. Even as Manoah recognized, you know, after he'd seen the angel of the Lord, I've seen God. 
Now, of course, John 1.18 says no one has ever seen God. But then John adds, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. And for all those reasons, I think it's likely that the angel of the Lord, at least here, as we find him in the book of Exodus and in other places, is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. There are on numerous occasions in the First Testament appearances of Jesus, and I think at his calling, it was the Son of God himself who appeared and called Moses. So let's continue to read Exodus 3, 4, and 5. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And after God had attracted Moses and drew him over, God now speaks, Moses, Moses. You know, some commentators call this repetition of endearment. It's a common way in the ancient Near East to express love. That's first encounter that Moses has with the voice of God, the God who loved him. It's an important aspect of this account for Moses, as we know, would learn a great deal about the holiness of God. God would later appear to him, you know, at the same mountain and give him the Ten Commandments. And Moses told everyone to stay away from the mountain or they would die. Now, this, the holiness of God, that's a part of his nature. God is not to be taken lightly. He is to be approached with reverent fear. But all of that doesn't cancel out his love. We find that Moses is addressed as one who is loved, and yet he's also told to remove his shoes and show reverence and to recognize that he stands in the presence of holiness. Removing one's shoes or taking off one's sandals was a practice of what was done when one entered into the presence of a superior. And interestingly enough, the idea of being on holy ground is said of no other location in the Bible. Even though that's so, we do know that the first tabernacle and then the temple had places that were designated first as the holy place and then the most holy place or the holy of holies. See, approaching the place of holiness was not permitted unless one is invited there. And so we see this man, Moses, loved by God, suddenly finding himself on holy ground. Had he known there is no doubt, he would have not ventured there in the first place. But now he finds himself there and he bays. He removes his sandals. Back to the Bible Canada's mission is to provide Bible teaching you can trust in every medium possible to break down any barriers from spending time in God's Word. So check out all the Bible resources available online, video, print, radio, podcast, and CD. And it's our prayer that anybody who tunes in finds encouragement in their spiritual journey. We want to guide you back to your Bibles. All of this is made possible through the faithful support of our listeners. If you would like to make a financial contribution to this ministry, or even consider blessing us with a reoccurring monthly gift to help propel the Word of God across Canada and beyond, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebiblecanada.ca. And thanks so much for your support. Exodus 3, verse 6, And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. You know, God's first address to Moses is not by answering Moses' later question. I mean, Moses will later ask God, what's your name? But now, 
The issue is not the name of God, but the God who has entered into covenant with the patriarchs. God is the one who had not only revealed himself to the patriarchs, but he entered into a binding agreement with them, an agreement that God would never break. You see, Moses never began a new religion. And even Jesus himself did not say that he had come to do away with the law and the prophets. I mean, things that God has done in the past are not amended or revised. God builds on what he has done and fulfills what he has promised, but he doesn't scrap his word or his promise. It's important to call our God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and for that matter, to call him the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we address God in this way, we place ourselves under the revelation that he has made. See, the great problem with progressive Christianity, indeed, you know, it's not Christianity at all, but nonetheless, the problem with what is called progressive Christianity is that it attempts to disregard God's firm word and the deeds that he has done in the past. And it does so in favor of the contemporary world. You know, if sexual mores change, then progressives suddenly imagine that God's commands regarding sexual purity has also changed. If inclusivism is suddenly preferred over exclusive claims of Christ, then the progressives immediately imagine that God must have changed. But the true faith, it's unchanging. It's rooted in God's works and his promises in history. Moses is told what we must be told. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11 affirms, no one can build on any other foundation than that which has been once for all laid. And this is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. To refer to God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is to submit to God's revelation in history. Christianity is a historical faith. It's rooted in things that always remain constant. Henry Francis Light wrote the lyrics of the great hymn, Abide With Me, and he wrote, Change and decay in all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. See, that's foundational. And it was foundational for Moses. He was not free to be a religious innovator. His only freedom was to bend the knee to the God who had authoritatively and unchangingly revealed his plans to the men he had chosen. And once that's understood, the only thing to do is to remove one's sandals, for one stands in the presence of a superior. That's faith. We are standing on holy ground. Moses hides his face. He's afraid to look at God. You know, in the ancient world, a servant would never approach a king and look the king in the face. And if that was true of earthly kings, how much more of God? Moses simply puts his face into his cloak. He will not look. Exodus 3, 7 to 10. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. The God of Abraham has a people. They are the people with whom he has made promises. And God's people are now suffering. And there's more. I would imagine that Moses was familiar with the promise that God had made about that very situation. It's found in Genesis 15, 13 to 16. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs 
and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I'll bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they, that is your descendants, shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now it was complete. Now it was time. Since God's promise to Abraham couldn't be violated, the time had come for the promise to be fulfilled. And for our purposes, we might have asked why God had allowed suffering to continue as long as it had. Now, we can't answer that question definitively. And we also know that it would have been a very small thing for God to have rescued his people the minute the Hyksos invaded Egypt and Israel became subject to slavery. But clearly, God has had plan for his people. He was going to make Egypt a very bitter experience so that they would never long for Egypt again. You know, when we say that, we're not implying that God's not concerned with immediate suffering because he is. He loves his people. Look at the wording God uses. Verse 7, I've seen the affliction of my people. In verse 7 again, I've heard their cry as they cry out under the cruel treatment of the taskmasters. Verse 9, I have seen their oppression. Their cry has come up to me. That is, it's been ringing in my ears all those years when Israel suffered. Yes, God did have a grand plan and there would be a glorious outcome, but that wouldn't mean that his heart was not moved when he saw his people crying out and suffering. Moses is to know how the heart of God is moved in compassion towards his people. And might I add here, that's a calling of all Christian leaders. Be moved as God is moved by the struggles of the people you lead. Don't be like the pastor who said, you know, I'm going to give them another blast next Sunday. I mean, dear pastor, do you love your people? Are you willing to lay down your life for your people? For Christ has. Verse 8 is now God's rescue plan. I've come to deliver them from the land of the Egyptians. And no doubt Moses was wondering how God would do that and what he was doing, you know, in this holy place before the burning bush. How would God rescue his people? How would he bring them to the land of milk and honey? How would God displace the, you know, very wicked people who were oppressing them? And his mind was racing. You know, am I at the age of 80 about to begin a new career? But remember, his sandals are off. His face is buried in his robe. His posture is one of submission. And then come the most powerful words that Moses had ever heard. Come, says God, come with me. I will send you to Pharaoh, and then you will lead my people out. There are times when the call of God is so large that it seems ludicrous to think that we should be involved in this. But such are the ways of God. If no faith is required, well, then it's merely a human task. But here we need to balance that. Moses didn't set out to do the most impossible thing that could be done, you know, make his mark somewhere, make a name for himself. I mean, please don't take the story of Moses' call to be a story of dreaming big things for God. See, that kind of talk, although I know it's common in our day, is really not a biblical story. The biblical story is that God chooses the great deeds. God chooses his servants. We should concern ourselves with, with none of that outside of this, that we will be faithful to the Lord our God all our days. If he calls us to great things, fine. If he calls us to a small field of endeavor, then we will serve him there with all our heart. Don't seek great things. Don't seek small things. Seek to be faithful to God's things. Exodus 3, 11 to 12. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you and this will be a sign for you that I have sent you. 
When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. See, Moses' first reaction, really, it's the right one. True, he's going to take it too far, but it's the proper reaction. Who am I, he says. He doesn't say, well, you know, I've got all the qualifications. You know, I'm a Hebrew. I know the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I know how to relate to Egyptian royalty. I'm the best trained with leadership skills for this task. Boy, I mean, God, you were right when you chose me. See, God rejects the proud. God rejects those who have grandiose visions of themselves. God chooses the least, the lowliest, the people who are surprised that God would even talk to them. But those who are wise in their own eyes and who think they're mighty and superior, I mean, he casts those aside. Who am I? And then comes the answer. The only answer that can be given to the question that Moses asks, but I will be with you. That's the only answer that can be given because it's the only answer that matters. Take this answer personally. Whatever God calls you to do, just do it. If it's impossible, do not waste your efforts in evaluating how able you are or how if this situation turns out just right, you might just be able to pull off the impossible. I mean, all those answers center on human abilities and on human pride. Listen, there are many things you can't do. It's not about helping you discover your inner hidden potential or the possibilities you might unleash if you just learn to believe in yourself. You know, when it comes to your limitless possibilities, I mean, think about your seemingly limitless possibilities to sin against God and offend His holiness. Think about that. Then lay yourself down in dust and ashes and confess that without His aid, you'd fail at everything. And then take your eyes off yourself and put your eyes on God. For if God is for you, who can be against you? Don't believe in yourself. Believe in God. Thanks for your message, John. You know, it becomes abundantly clear that Moses received the call of God upon his life. But for some of us, that call might not seem so obvious. Should we feel we've missed something or should we be concerned? Yeah, we shouldn't be concerned. I mean, not everyone's going to have a burning bush experience, uh, meeting Christ on the road to Damascus. I mean, those things are really reserved uh, for apostles and prophets, I think. Um, But every single one of us can look at the giftedness that the Holy Spirit puts in our lives and also the passions that God has given us uh, for certain kinds of ministry. Uh, We should settle on that which God wants us to do, and we should do that with all our hearts uh, for all of our lives. Um, So I I think even though we haven't had a burning bush experience, we can still believe I've been called by God for a purpose. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, God's Rescue Plan right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Our society is filled with hustle and noise. Everyone is in a rush to go and do. We always are striving to be productive, and too often we carry this flustered spirit into our faith. What if God was looking for our presence and not just our productivity? God wants us to know Him intimately. This requires time, time to be still and silent with Him. So, in response, Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld have created a new 30-day devotional entitled Quiet Spaces, Volume 2. This is the next installment of the original Quiet Spaces devotional. This is your opportunity to take a moment in the Word, a quiet space for God in your day. 
So we want to send you this resource, Quiet Spaces Volume 2, for free this month by just calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visiting backtothebible.ca.